I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystopians, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the sunrise of December 24th, 1983. Lights and decorations have turned the town of Colchester into a Christmas wonderland, minus the snow. In a manner, along one of the hills, every inch was red, green, white, toasty, and jolly. Devin Castanati jumped out of bed, opened her window, and smelled the fresh air. Its chilly fragrance broke the news to her that Christmas has finally arrived. She jogged for her silver radio and turned it to the local radio station. The host wished listeners like Devin a wonderful Christmas Eve, saying that there will be lots of holiday action starting tonight and going on well into tomorrow. As she listened on, her sister Chloe had already showered and freshened up, changing into a white turtleneck, red plaid skirt, and Santa hat. Though eager to experience yet another Christmas, she was a wee bit worried about tonight and tomorrow. The party she and her family planned to attend was being televised live nationwide. Called Brumelia's Supper. It was a telephone held at the Walpole Castle, located in a small man-made valley north of town. The party spanned from 6 p.m. on the 24th to that time on the 25th, raising money for charity. It was a must-attend for all politicians of Las Grandes Cascadas, as well as presidential candidates like Habsburgo V and Gregorio Jr. The girls' father, Hiram, was a federal senator from Las Grandes Cascadas, while their mother, Mercia, chaired the province's UBA chapter. They were apprehensive as hell about being around Gregorio, having been recipients of its rancorous vitriol. Chloe joined Devin in listening to the jolly old and saintly tunes falling drunk on their wants to give, help, and celebrate Jesus Christ's birth. In advert, neither of them saw coming darkened their red, green, and white spirits to black. The ad began by calling Grimsby a corrupt plutocrat and Habsburgo a pitiful failure. It detailed how Brumelia had become spineless thanks to its surrender of Robapel and the Adaloon Islands. The ad stated that the conservatives have ransacked the nation of its wealth while the liberals have done the same to its power. It told listeners that the Brumelian people deserve a president who will bring them their wealth back and restore their country's standing in the world. The ad declared Gregorio as that one and only leader, saying that he'll make Brumelia exceptional again. Chloe and Devin couldn't disagree with it more, fearfully hugging and shaking as the state of their nation and its people knocked the stuffing out of them. Even with all that fear, they still found comfort and protection in each other's company. It hardened their backbones from magma to rock, reminding them of the fun they're gonna have with Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin, their best friends since preschool. 
The six of them were a collective of minds who saw the world in front of them. Chloe was a caretaker whom small children looked up to and saw in a motherly light. Devin was a rhythmic gymnast whose fluidity and flexibility left the nation speechless. Erasmo was a mathlete with a mind that solved problems at the speed of a race car. Basilia was a painter who turned her every stroke into a natural wonder of the world. Olvin was a fashionista whose love for the finer things in life crafted his every garment. And Yailin was an assistant nurse with a knack for treating the sick and consoling the hurt. Their friendship was known publicly as the House of Goodwill, exemplifying six of Bromelia's bright young minds. But for all the bees they had in their bonnets about their union, Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin had grown distant from Chloe and Devon in recent weeks. The reasons behind that distance were unknown to the latter two, but were of great concern to them. Chloe placed a call to Erasmo and Basilia, while Devon did so to Olvin and Yailin. When their calls all went unanswered, their voices fell to their knees, pushing them to yell into an answering machine, their pleas for their friends to tell them what was going on, if they were okay or needed their help. Hours later, the Castanati family rode in a limo up, down, and along the Cascades, seeing other refined saloons ahead of and behind them. The radio news detailed the nation's 16% unemployment rate, its inflation being at a point not seen since the early 1950s, and the rise in anti-democratic rhetoric following the 1982 midterm elections. Devon expressed how dismayed she was at how negative the nation had become. When asked by Mercia what she meant by that, she explained that the negativity can be heard and seen in the classroom, out on the yard, and at the parking lot. Chloe was curious to know why Devon cared so much about the sewer their country was knee-deep in. The answer she got was that her sister saw its putrid waters geyser out firsthand. When the teacher left the class for a minute, Devon saw her classmates cheer on two boys who called their hurt party a liberal F-slur as they pummeled him. On the schoolyard, she watched two girls restrain their victim as their leader sliced her forehead wide open with a razor blade. At the parking lot, Devin caught three boys trying to force their knives into their female victim's arteries between two large vans. Though the incidents differed, the perpetrators were all wearing yellow jackets. They ranted and raved about how Brumelia will again belong to them and their families. The kids were neither the richest nor the poorest in town, but were the most disconsolate of their peers, longing for the heyday their grandmas and grandpas told them about. Chloe screamed at Devon to bring her spirits out of the deep, dark pit they were in. Her sister snapped out of that despondency, but only to the extent that it wasn't obvious. Devon wanted to keep positive, but her melancholia was a persistent and constant foe. Hiram and Mercia were no strangers to her issues with deep sadness and gloom, painting them to let her feelings empty onto their arms and shoulders. Chloe looked on 
with a stoic poignance that was full of deep holes too small for the human eye to see. The second the mansion was in sight was when the Castanatis saw the protesters hissing, booing, and heckling every car that entered the property. Like the kids, Devin saw do dirt, their sleeves too crossed and horned their black and yellow. When the time came for the family to make their entry, the venom the protesters spat out made their skins crawl. The protesters went from spitting venom to blowing hearts at the blink of an eye. Devin looked back and saw Gregorio relishing the fanfare coming his way. Chloe and Mercia struggled to seat her distressed tail back down and cover her ears. Hiram found it ironic that Gregorio, of all people, would attend the supper, considering that he himself had boisterously protested the event just a year earlier. In the entrance hall, the Castanatis greeted, hugged, and kissed their liberal and conservative brethren, including Habsburgo V, VI, VII, and Jacinda. Devin saw Gregorio be the center of the greetings, hugs, and kisses among the Yellow Cross caucusers. Then she and Chloe heard their friends cheerfully yell and briskly walk for them. They were relieved to see them be the blithesome peaches they always were. But for all their love and laughs, Chloe and Devin still wanted Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin to tell them what happened with their phone call that morning. Erasmo told the sisters that he and the others had some private matters to resolve. Basilia added that they couldn't call them no matter how much they wanted to. Olvin stated that the morning he and the others had made them look inside themselves. Yailin assured Chloe and Devin that the missed calls will be repaid in full with interest. The sisters didn't know what she meant by that, but were more invested in the party at hand. The clock strike of six welcomed listeners and viewers to Brumelia's supper, giving a lowdown of the film's performances, nativities, partying, and shenanigans that awaited. It made some guests feel kind and helpful, yet had others drunk on contempt and spite. The first hour went by without a hitch, taking guests on a ride of jingling bells that dashed through the snow. During that hour, not a hiss or bite was anywhere to be seen, bringing people across the political spectrum together for carols, photos, and laughs. When it ended, dinner came calling, and the guests sat like families at the various tables in the grand ballroom. The assigned seating gave the Castanatis the fortune of being with the sisters' friends and the bad luck of sitting with the Brumels, Jacinda, and Gregorio. Their digs into their Sunday roasts got Gregorio to express how grateful he was to have the whole of Brumelia sitting mere feet from him. Hiram could feel the bitter indignation radiate out of Habsburgo V like a parabolic heater. The president didn't forget the deplorable things Gregorio said about him during his rallies. His rally in Hamilton garnered controversy when he joked about hanging liberals and watching them swing with the breeze. In Ivyville, his rally for coal miners 
saw him accusing Habsburgo V of purposely leaving people like them to rot and suffer and squalor. During his rally in Rancho Amarillo, he told a young crowd that the president was actively making their money worthless, streets crime-ridden, and careers hopeless. That struck a chord in a generation that was coming of age in a time where unpopular decisions had to be made to save the nation from insolvency. Knowing why Habsburgo V was fuming, Gregorio taunted him for being mad that the truth was coming out. He asked Habsburgo if his crooked tale was having fun, covering for his criminal son. That prompted Habsburgo VI to yell out about how the allegations against him were damn lies cooked up by fascist animals like him. Gregorio stood up and slapped the table, bouncing the dishes and utensils. His loud double slap scared the Christmas spirits away like birds after hearing a rifle go off. Gregorio's scowl took Habsburgo VI to a cliff where the sight below was them fighting like drunk bar patrons. They were about to fight when Hiram and Mercia calmed them into sitting back down. The would-be fight absolutely terrified Devon, and while Jacinda would join in her terror, her friends were seriously and severely absorbing everything that was happening. Chloe excused herself from the table and had her sister come with her. That got Habsburgo VII to leave the dinner and take Jacinda with him. By the hand, Chloe took a jittery Devon into their bedroom and agitatedly pleaded with her to chill the F out. Her curse word chilled her sister's nervousness into an ill temper at full pelt, having them be at each other's chest-grabbing throats. Their stares were indicative of two brawlers ready to fight like weaponized pit bulls. Where the sisters were rewound the tapes in their hippocampi to chapter one. From their first footsteps, Chloe vowed to protect Devon from everything. In return, her sister made it her promise to put her on a pedestal and give her sympathy. The results their views ended up going to were an alternating pattern of black and white squares. Despite that, their affection remained hale and hearty, albeit with more than a few black spots. Chloe and Devon relaxed their grasps and deprived their anger of its bite-hungry arms, bringing them to a hug as calming and sweet as chamomile mint. That embrace was intruded on by a rapid, delirious back and forth of ruckus and running around. Bolting into the hallway, Chloe and Devin stopped at the sight of a bedroom four doors down with no lights on and its door hanging open. They barged inside and turned on the lights, revealing a space where not a square inch was tidy, in place, or undamaged. The sisters looked down and were extremely shocked to see Jacinda lie stark naked, beaten, and curled up on her left side, feeling her blood run near zero Kelvin. Within hand's reach of her torn-apart clothes, Habsburgo VII was supine and semi-conscious, all but immobilized by his raw and bleeding injuries. Like Chloe and Devon, 
he and Jacinda too came within seconds of fighting. She curled her lip at him for his day-long fear, assuring him that she'd protect him. A promise that fell through horribly, potentially taking their friendship with it to that nothing. Chloe tried to comfort her, but was neurotically brushed off and told to stay the hell away. Jacinda didn't know what made her weep more, the depraved things that were done to her, or how she failed Habsburgo after vowing that no one would hurt him under her watch. Habsburgo, on the other hand, was more receptive of Devon coming to his aid, finding her care for him quite therapeutic. She and Chloe were caught in between where he and Jacinda were emotionally, in more distress than he was, but not quite as far into the psychological gutter that his friend was in. Her sister tried asking Jacinda who attacked her, but only got unintelligible wails and pleas for no one to lay a finger on her. Devin told Habsburgo that he's got to tell her who attacked him, not just for himself, but for his friend and everybody else. He pondered her words for a moment, then said, Espinal, Cagigas, Lyra, and Parisima. Something in Habsburgo VI said to him that Gregorio was by some means involved. That inflamed him into storming out in search of his father's political rival. Gregorio and his fellow caucusers were drinking sherry in the grand room when the president's son came stomping in and began to fight him. Habsburgo VI had the upper hand until the caucusers restrained and pushed him back, giving him his chance to get his fair share of the punches in. His father entered as Gregorio punched him in the eye as his lackeys held him upright. Habsburgo V madly helped his son duke it out with his attackers. They spat and blared scorn at their foes for brutalizing Habsburgo VII and assaulting Jacinda. Baffled by the accusations, Gregorio and the caucusers vilified the father and son for thinking that nationalists like them would stoop to such criminality. Habsburgo V barked at him to stop his lies, feeling that he set the kids up to be violated and harmed. Hiram and Mercia applied the brakes to the fighting, irking the two sides into swatting their hands away and walking to opposite ends of the room. Their standing at its center got Habsburgo V and Gregorio to look at them bitterly. As a couple, they were too far away from one side and not close enough to the other. Habsburgo V and VI intensely held Hiram and Mercia in disfavor for not seeing how much of a threat the Yellow Cross was to their democracy. On the flip side, Gregorio took exception to the couple not understanding the dire straits their people were in. Still in all, Hiram and Mercia noticed that their daughters were missing and that their friends were also nowhere to be seen sweeping over them in immense doom. Chloe and Devin chased their friends outside, up the valley, and far down into it. They wrestled to keep pace with them due to the lack of illumination and sheer forest, while the sisters could hear their friends run, 
what they struggled with got dimmer and more treacherous, their dread worsening its sting with each throwback and stomp forward. Chloe and Devin were flummoxed by their friends' hard and fast runs from them. The sisters wanted, yet feared, finding out what got them to attack Hobbs, Burgle, and Jacinda. There was little doubt in their minds that the four were at fault, given what Devin heard him say. Plus, Chloe saw them run away like a pack of burglars. Devin sprinted into pitch black and felt her left foot step on air, jolting her into digging her right heel into the ground and pulling back her body's emergency brake. Chloe grabbed her sweater and pulled her back, keeping her from falling on her rear end and bouncing into a 30-foot tumble down an ice wall sheer embankment. She and Devin spent the next few seconds getting their breaths back, then looked down the slope and ahead of it, seeing a forest manor sit peacefully under a street light. They were sure that approaching the home would put them in danger, but felt like it was their duty to stop their friends from possibly striking again. The manor's lights inside were all out, its air humming, its compressed quiet. In the living room, Olvin slapped Erasmo around, yelling at him for effing him and the girls over. With that attack, he peer pressured them into doing. Basilia cried out to him that he betrayed the group with what he just made it do. Erasmo sniggered at her to not be ridiculous, adding that he did their faction one hell of a favor by taking their victims' privileged tails down a peg or two. That drove Olvin and Basilia to scream and punch him for refusing to realize that all they've worked for was now as worthless as excreta. Erasmo kicked him in the groin and boxed her ears, dropping their screaming and punching to an end as suddenly as it began. His look at a silent and afraid Yailin was her cue from him to listen real carefully so that she herself doesn't get bluntly struck. Erasmo asked her how long she, Basilia, and Olvin have been friends with him. Yalin answered that their union preceded their entries into puberty. When he asked her why their group came to be in the first place, she dolefully bit her bottom lip and said that they met in an ER waiting room. As Duilio, Erasma, Ladislao, Isaura, Nicanor, Ryan, Aurelio, and Tecla fought for their lives. Her answer took Basilia and Olvin with her into that blue abyss of a time, a chasm made all the more bottomless by the grievous bodily harm inflicted on the four parental pairs previous to the hospitalizations. They joined Erasmo in dwelling on the ends they were barely able to meet, messing them up from the time they entered the hospital to the weeks that followed their exit. The manor the four of them were in was a household they and their parents shared. Its mortgage ate more than two-thirds of their cumulative monthly income. The four's parents lived off the trust funds they inherited from their mothers and fathers who reached the peaks of their powers when Gregorio Sr. was president. 
Their trust funds were the supply that financed their workless lifestyles, allowing them to live in clover, at least until the drought of income dried up their balances to puddles no taller than an armadillo. The years they spent not working forced them to live in straightened circumstances inside their big house. But worst of all, that action didn't avert the foreclosing inevitable they were months from reaching, but merely kicked it down the road like a can. It wasn't like the twelve of them could find steady work that paid enough as the parents only had diplomas in general education and their kids were unlikely to graduate. Erasmo explained that he, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin were one because of the pain they shared, pity it aroused, and fondness that grew out like plants. He pointed out that none of the Castanadis did a darn thing for them when they begged them for support, equating the insults and laughter they got to Habsburgo V's disloyalty to his own people. Yailin asked Erasmo if he was saying that Jacinda, the Castanadis and Brumels were cut from the same cognitive cloth. He answered that their natures were indeed identical, adding that it took staring penury in the face for him to get it. That fixed look beat its senses into his friends as harshly the second time around as it did the first. It caused the group to remember why they didn't have any contact with Chloe and Devon for all those weeks. The nays the sisters said to their pleas for financial help was the moment they knew that their four-on-two coexistence was finished. And the attacks were their ways of expressing their displeasure over that double cross. Their heart-to-heart -heart was banged to an end by door knocks that echoed like hammers banging nails into wood. The group presumed that Chloe and Devon were at the door, and so they removed their shoes and walked quietly and carefully upstairs. Their ex-friends felt their stomach juices acidify into pure lime juice affixing to their boiling and steaming bile. The talk they just overheard confirmed Devin's worst fears, and what Chloe did not want to believe was so. Caught up in their disgust and anger, the sisters recklessly kicked the door off its hinges and stormed inside. That break-in came to rest before the flashing bright lights of a TV, broadcasting Gregorio's warning of the coming disaster and disillusion that awaited Bermelia should he not be elected president. He told viewers that if Habsburgo gets a second term, their freedoms will be gone, criminals will rise to power, industries will collapse, assets will be seized, millions will die, and their heritage will again go up in flames. The lights doused the sisters' eyes in a straining, head-aching funk that sidetracked them from their ex-friends' walks downstairs. Chloe and Devon were powerless to stop Basilia and Olvin from cross-locking them as Erasmo and Yailin threatened to shoot them dead if they don't do exactly what they're told. The threats made had the sisters asking how their ex-friends could do and say what they did and said. Their yells excited Erasmo into asking them why they were surprised, feeling that their uncaringness should make their motives plain to see. 
Chloe retorted his idea that she and Devin didn't care about the group, mocking them for being mad that her and her family didn't enable their collective freeloading. Her remarks emboldened her sister into calling the group and their parents losers who've never worked a day in their lives, going as far as saying that they deserved all the suffering they got up to now and will get in prison. Devin's comments ired Basilia and Olvine into tightening their locks to the rearmost belt hole. Erasmo and Yailene cocked their guns and aimed them at the sisters' aortic arches. The second they said goodbye and good riddance, police officers leapt through the windows and ran past the front door, arresting the group in one go. Chloe and Devin sucked up their struggles to breathe and clambered to safety. They listened and watched their now enemies scream in trepidation unforgivingly. It took a bit of time for the sisters to re-solidify and re-stabilize their breathing. A short while after, Hiram and Mercia had a fervent reunion with their daughters. The family was relieved that the ordeal that prematurely ended the supper was over. Their attention turned to the arrested group at the center of it all. Their eyes and its lids still moist, the group vengefully pointed at the Castanatis with the most ghastly glares they've ever seen. To the family, seeing their frowns made the colds that took hold of their spines worse than a flowing river in a sub-zero tundra. In a police SUV, the apprehension the group acquired in their home carried on. They knew for certain that their parents would thrash them apart when they came back from the Christmas holiday in Catalina Coast, La Costa del Norte. But as their trip to jail shifted to drive, the group received a clenched fist from Gregorio. That jester sucked away their trepidation's moisture, handing them a lifeline that readied them spiritually for the realms they were en route to. Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin rested on one another and fell drowsy on the back seat. As for Gregorio, his grin accentuated his feeling that all was going according to plans. He knew Duilio, Erasma, Ladislao, Isara, Nicanor, Rayen, Aurelio, and Tecla well. Those eight were at Gregorio's side when an incident he led landed him in prison. The lack of evidence linking them to the crime helped them avoid prison and restitution. His connections in mind, Gregorio had tons of things planned for their kids. By daybreak, Habsburgo VII and Jacinda's attacks were all over the news, and so were the violent felony charges the group faced. And incredibly enough, Mauricia was one of the people who wrote about it. Her opinion piece went out of its way to hold the group in contempt for ruining one of Brumelia's great traditions. It pushed out the outrage that bubbled in the minds of young teens such as Eldon Sr., Trinity, Quentin, and Escarn who were watching Brumelia's supper when it cut to static. Yet other adolescents like Caprice were jumping for joy over the event being ruined by four of their own.
the Castanadis dipped the air in their manor in an overcast melancholy that took a sleepless night and reclusive day to recover from. Their way of coming to terms with that sadness was entering 1984 more committed to their pursuits than ever before. Hiram and Mercia campaigned tirelessly for Habsburgo V becoming two of his most loyal surrogates. Chloe and Devon graduated high school and earned generous scholarships to Alexisville State University, but that was before the violence and bedlam leading up to and after the 1984 election. On November 11th of that year, Chloe and Devon rode together in a school bus. The sisters didn't know what their end destination was, but knew it wouldn't help in taking their lives out of the worst it turned to. When Gregorio took power, his cronies were hard-hearted in separating them from their parents. Nonetheless, Chloe and Devon gazed into each other's frangible faces, holding shaky hands and mouthing their promise to protect one another come what may. They shuddered to think what was being done to Hiram and Mercia as of their bus ride. The sisters were hopeful that their parents were okay, but also fearful that they weren't. Their bus slowed to a stop and they beheld their end point. At first glance, its vivid green brush, rich brown bark, lively gray rock, and damp umber dirt were of alarm to no one. The troops instructed the sisters and their busmates to get off their bus and line up in three rows of twelve. When Chloe and Devon were pulled to the front, they saw kids from two additional buses comply with the same instructions. As seconds became minutes, the kids sensed more and more that something wasn't right. Chloe and half of her peers couldn't figure out what that wrong thing was. However, the other half, Devin being among them, saw the sign that convivially welcomed them to Camp Sunshine. Their senses of touch froze as many teens their age marched over to them in their uniformed jackets, button-downs, khakis, and shoes. And among those adolescents were Erasmo, Basilia, Olvin, and Yailin, who salivated their nefarious desires at Devon and Chloe as their comrades did with the other bus riders. The group's saliva was milky yellow and put to shame the sharpness of their canines. They did not forget a single detail of what Chloe and Devon unleashed upon them. When the sisters described them for the first time in over ten months, that was when they realized that the real battle was about to start, and as fate would have it, the two-on-four clash would merely be one of countless that would occur during Gregorio's rule. And that was Brumelia's Supper. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 
95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.